Amen. Isn't it good to sing the songs we sang this morning and to be reminded of the truths we've been, been already reminded of this morning in light of all that's been going on these days? Um, I came across an article written earlier this week by Kevin DeYoung called What Will Still Be True When the Election Is Over? And I just want to read a portion of that article as it gets us right into our text this morning. God will still be on the throne. He'll still be working all things according to the counsel of his will. He'll still be the refuge and strength and very present help and trouble for his people. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will endure from generation to generation. Our God is not small and his providential care cannot be stymied. The king's heart will be a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he will turn it wherever he chooses. Not a bird will fall to the ground or a hair from your head apart from your father in heaven. Our God does whatever he pleases. There is no guarantee for good or ill regarding the future of the United States of America, but there is an unbreakable promise that Christ will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Come tomorrow or any day thereafter, all the promises of God will still be yes and amen in Christ. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Lord will still know those who are his and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. We do not wonder or have to wonder about God's priorities. Each new day, He will exalt above all things his name and his word. God promises to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. The poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted, they will be blessed. And the wicked will reap what they sow. God cannot be mocked. No matter who controls the Senate or the presidency, the Great Commission will still be accomplished through the ordinary means of grace. As for men, their days are like grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Whichever party occupies the White House or the governor's mansion, the most solemn charge laid upon every pastor will be the same, to preach the word in season and out of season. Republicans and Democrats will come and go, but Christ's reign is secure. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved, and one day, maybe soon, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Politics matter, policies matter, presidents matter. They really do. But let us never forget that some things matter much, much, eternally much more. Amen. And in Revelation 1, 9 through 20, we have what matters much, much, eternally much more. I hope this morning that above everything else, you will be deeply and profoundly impacted on, of the, in the Jesus you see here, because you're going to meet him one day. And all this stuff we're doing right now isn't going to matter. We're just playing games in history, sometimes really important games. But this is the one who currently reigns and rules over all things and is sovereignly executing his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So that none can say to him, say to him, what have you done? He doesn't have to give an answer to us. We will give an answer to him. Let's look at him this morning and pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would see the glory of the Son of Man. Last week as we got into the book of Revelation, we saw that this book is centered on one person, Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we saw last week, among other things, that He's the firstborn from among the dead, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he's the one who's loved us and has freed us from our sins by, the, by his blood. He's been raised from the dead, and he's currently ruling and reigning, and he's coming soon. 
with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, as we saw in chapter 1, will wail on account of him. And even so, we say, come Lord Jesus. This morning, John's going to give us the first vision of Jesus Christ himself, this first revelation of who Jesus is. So we're going to unpack this vision under three headings. Number one, the request of the Son of Man. Number two, the revelation of the Son of Man. And number three, the response to the Son of Man. Let's look first of all at the request of the Son of Man. We read in verse 9, I, John, this is John the uh, disciple and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of his inner circle, one of his three closest friends on earth. says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John explains the circumstances in which he's writing and that led up to this revelation. He's writing from Patmos, which is a small island in the Aegean Sea, six miles long and about a mile wide off the coast of Asia Minor, where he's been banished for his uncompromising loyalty to Christ. The island of Patmos had been a Roman penal settlement for people considered dangerous to social order. John was one such person. In introducing himself, he doesn't focus on his apostleship. He doesn't say, I'm an important person. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Y'all better listen to me. He doesn't say any of that. He rather focuses on his solidarity with the suffering believers to whom he is writing. Donald Johnson, commentator on Revelation and pastor, says, John is not claiming to be anyone special. He's not flaunting his office, his gifts, or his experience. Callings and positions do not raise the status of those who are in Christ. We are all sinners and we are all saved by grace unto the same salvation by the same Lord. The hierarchy of the clergy and sainthood were satanic inventions. John was content to be identified as a brother in the Lord. Notice what he says, I, John, your brother and partner. See, John isn't engaging in theoretical reflection. He knows firsthand what it's like to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He says, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he reminds them that he's not only a partner with them, in their suffering, but also of the kingdom that is coming. And in the meantime, both he and those to whom he is writing, which includes us as well, must patiently endure. And I just want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that this description is an apt summary of the entire existence of believers in this world. This is what we should expect. I want you to see this. G.K. Beale, commentator on Revelation, says that only one Greek article precedes these three words, the three words of brother and partner and, tri- or, sorry, tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance, which conveys the idea that all three are part of the same reality. This can be a summary of our lives in this world. We are going to be enduring tribulation while we're a part of the kingdom of God, so the kingdom of God doesn't get you spared from suffering. God forbid that error, that horrendous heresy that is present all too much in our land, that somehow if you come into the kingdom of God, you are separated from suffering. No, the kingdom of God puts you right in the crosshairs of suffering. 
you get more suffering as a result of being part of the kingdom of God than if you weren't, not less. And notice what we're called to do while we live in this kingdom that's a spiritual kingdom that will one day be a physical kingdom when Christ returns. But while we live in a spiritual kingdom, we're called to endure tribulation with patient endurance. It's going to require patience and it's going to require endurance. We don't get everything right now. No cross, no crown. It didn't happen for Jesus and it won't happen for us. No crown without a cross. We cannot get to the place of exercising future kingdom rule apart from the patient endurance and suffering through difficulty that this life requires. We follow a suffering servant. We will be suffering servants. We get everything he got except the wrath of God. The kingdom comes in the form of a suffering savior and the kingdom advances through the lives of suffering saints. This is what you signed up for when you got baptized. And if you didn't know, now you know. So how will we show the world a suffering savior if everything's going well all the time for us? They won't see it. They won't see it. They won't pay attention to it. God has not ordained, listen to this, brothers and sisters, especially in our prosperous Western condition that we find ourselves in. God has not ordained for his kingdom to advance, his king to be clear through the healthiest, wealthiest people who have all the pleasures and possessions and comforts and luxuries this world has to offer. It does not reveal the king. It reveals a false king. Is that who our king is? Really? The, the one who uh, steps away from suffering, embraces comfort, and pours out goodies? Is that who our king is? No, we have a king who emptied himself and suffered under the wrath of God for the sins of his people. God has ordained thus that his kingdom advance and his kingdom be clear through men and women who let go of their wealth and give their possessions away because Christ is better than possessions. And when we lose our health, we say Christ is better than health. And we lose our culture. We say Christ is better than culture. And we lose our freedoms. We say Christ is better than freedom. I'm the Lord's freed man. You're the freest person in the world. And we lose our loved ones. We say Christ has conquered death. This is not the last word. This is the vision that we're given in Revelation. And this is the reason Revelation is written to enable us to patiently endure while we're waiting for the kingdom. Now notice also, verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now John notes that he was in the Spirit. This phrase is usually used at key points in the book to designate that the spirit of prophecy has come upon John. In other words, he's getting ready to receive a vision. We see the phrase in the spirit used four times in the book of Revelation. Here in chapter 1, verse 10, it's also in chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, and chapter 21, verse 10. Thus, when John says he was in the spirit, it means he's receiving revelation from God in that moment. The content of what he is writing carries the authority of God behind it since John was inspired by the spirit of God in what he wrote. Now, he receives this revelation, he says, on the Lord's day. Now, this is what day we're in right now. 
It's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. All the gospel writers note that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. So we know from the New Testament that this first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, was the day on which the church began to gather after Jesus' resurrection. We also read here that not only was John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, but he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. Now the trumpet sound represents the announcement calling John to write down what God revealed to him. The trumpet echoes what happened when the Lord revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? Back several months ago when we were making our way through Exodus. In Exodus 19, verses 17 through 20, what happens right before the Lord reveals himself on Mount Sinai is a loud trumpet sound. So we've already seen references to Exodus 19 used already in this chapter when in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, believers are called a kingdom of priests to God, which is the same language that was used to describe the people of Israel. So here we see an echo of Exodus as well in that there's a loud trumpet blast to signal God is getting ready to reveal something. And what he's getting ready to reveal is magnificent, a vision of Jesus. But before we get to that vision, look down at verse 11. We read, this is what God, or God says to John, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day, write what you see in a book. That's this right here, Revelation. Okay? Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. That's going to be what we're going to consider the next seven sermons. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, John is given his commission here. He's going to get a vision and he's supposed to write it down and send it to the churches. He's supposed to write on a scroll the message for the seven churches and they are listed in the order they are addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Additionally, the order reflects the route a courier would take in dispensing the book. So Ephesus was on the coast, and then the cities are in like a circle beginning with Ephesus and ending up in Laodicea as they make kind of an upside-down horseshoe shape as they would make their way across Asia Minor to be received by all the churches. Now look down at verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place. So verse 19 describes what this revelation will consist of. Things that are happening and things that will happen. See, John sees what is both now and what is to come. His vision, therefore, includes all of human history, past, present, and future. Then in verse 20, We read, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now, through John, we get the Lord disclosing the first little bit of symbolism here. What's all this about? The seven stars equal the seven churches, or sorry, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands equal the seven churches. Now, we are not told who... The angels are. Some have speculated that they are the pastors of the churches. Now, the word for angel, angelos, or messenger, is used to describe Christ in the Gospels. Mark 1-2 and Matthew 11-10. It's also used to describe other human messengers. Luke 7-24, Luke 9-52, James 2-25. But note, it's never used to describe pastors. 
And Revelation uses the word angel 75 times and it never refers to human beings. So I'm not inclined to think it's the best way to see the text. Now, I think we should view them as heavenly beings. But the relationship of angels to churches is mysterious, but it is described in different places in the Bible, like, for instance, 1 Corinthians 11.10 or Matthew 18.10 or Hebrews 1.14. I don't have time to taint, to, uh, t- turn us to all those passages. But the point is, there is a ministry for angels to churches, all churches. Now, I don't want to be dogmatic about this because God's people have different interpretations about what the angel is. I've read 20 different commentaries and about they're halfway. They're split, 10 of them. Ten each. Some of them see it as pastors. Some of them see it as as heavenly beings. Tim Chester said, the lack of explicit biblical teaching on this in the Bible suggests that we're not intended to build much on this. End quote. (laughs) We aren't. We're not expected to build much on this theme. We'll see in more detail in chapters 2 and 3 that the meaning of lampstand refers to churches. But for now, the church is called to be a light. That's what a lampstand does. It illuminates all all that's around it. just as the church is called to illuminate the world with the gospel. And we're golden because we're precious to Jesus. That's what gold communicates. So we're golden not because we're so awesome. (laughs) We're golden because we're so precious, because we're so valuable, not because necessarily we're valuable in the eyes of the world or in in, in ourselves, but we're valuable to the one who has redeemed us. So that's the request of the Son of Man. We see that he comes to John... In the spirit, he gives him a vision on the Lord's day to write this down, what he's getting ready to reveal, and to send it, disperse it to the seven churches. Second, the revelation of the Son of Man. This is the essence of the first thing he is to write down. And it is an amazing vision of Jesus as he is right now. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, that would be representative of the churches, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now when John is summoned by the voice And looks, he sees a glorious vision of the Son of Man. Now, this is rich with symbolism. Remember how we talked about last week? The book of Revelation is filled with this symbolic language. And the word like, like, he's like a Son of Man. His hair was like this. His robe was like this. Means that we're not intended to view this literally. We're to see it as symbolic. This is confirmed in chapter 1, verse 16. Look there. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, no one would put two swords in their mouth, literally, unless they wanted something very bad to happen to them. So this is not intended to communicate. Jesus is not walking around with a big, double-edged sword hanging out of his mouth all the time. It's It's an image. It's a symbol. It's meant to communicate something. Now, the phrases, like a son of man, allude to Daniel chapter 7, which is what we're going to turn to in just a second. Daniel 7 is a glorious vision of a human figure represented like God. 
At the same time, this human being in Daniel has divine characteristics. And he's called the Son of Man. Remember, this is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations in the Gospels. Probably more than any other term he used to describe himself, he described himself as the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he's a human. He's not saying, I'm human. I'm the Son of a man. No, the Son of Man is a, is a biblical image that was rich in Old Testament history and in the understanding of the Jewish people of that day. They knew exactly when Jesus said Son of Man what he was talking about. Daniel chapter 7 and the vision that we see there. So with that in mind, let's turn to Daniel 7 and look at this vision in more detail. Daniel chapter 7. Again, this is the background of what, we, what John is seeing here in Revelation 1. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse, we'll pick it up at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Sound familiar? A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, that's the point of all of this. All this imagery and all this symbolism is meant to communicate one thing to us this morning, brothers and sisters. Jesus has been given glory and dominion and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages will serve him that his kingdom and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That is the point of the vision. Jesus' kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. Look at Daniel chapter 10. And we see a little bit more of this in Daniel chapter 10 verses 5 and 6. I lifted up my eyes and behold, looked and behold a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from uppas around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So literally, shot through Revelation chapter 1 is this vision in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Almost the exact same language is used multiple times. In Revelation 1.13, we have a direct quotation of Daniel 10.5. In 1.14, we have direct quotations of Daniel 7.9 and 10.6. In 1.15, we have direct quotations of Daniel 6. And in 1.16, we have a direct quotation of Daniel 6. So the point is, as David Platt says, this passage provides what is quite possibly the most majestic portrait of Jesus that has ever been written down on paper. As I was sitting up in my office this morning, I was just, I was saying to the Lord, I got no idea how I'm going to say this. How can, how can me, 
an earthen vessel, a jar of clay, a creature of the dirt, and a sinner to boot. Talk about this. I got no business talking about this except for the fact that God has said, my son, preach it. Tell him. And so I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell us. We're going to talk about it. Let's look at this revelation of the Son of Man. As inadequate as I feel myself to be, I pray that by the Spirit, the same Spirit that fell upon John would fall upon all of us so that we in some small measure would be able to get a glimpse of who our King is. Look at 114 again. The hairs of his head were like wool, like snow. So let's talk about his anatomy first. The white hair indicates that this one, this Lord Jesus Christ, is all-knowing. It isn't literal, it's symbolic. White hair in the Old Testament is used repeatedly as a symbol for wisdom, omniscience, eternity. So this, we are, we are interacting with one who knows everything. The end from the beginning. We are interacting with one who, as John Piper said, makes the Library of Congress look like a little matchbox. He knows everything about everything. Doesn't that give you comfort? We have no earthly kings like that. This king knows everything about everything. We've been confronted that, that this week, haven't we, with all the things going on surrounding the election with claims of fraud and all that, and we don't know, right? But we know who knows. We know who knows. And this should remind us that we don't know. You're not God. I'm not God. But he's God. Jesus knows all things. Notice his eyes as well. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now this expression is used two other times in Revelation. And this helps us understand what it refers to. I want you to look just at one of them. Revelation chapter 2. Turn your... Bible over one page to Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. We'll get here in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Where we read, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eye has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And then chapter 19. Sorry, I told you one. I can't help it. We'll go to 19, verse 12. The end of Revelation. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So this helps us understand. He knows some things that nobody else knows. That's part of what's being communicated by this idea of his eyes are like flames of fire. It indicates that he is penetrating and discerning in his judgment. Nothing is hidden from the sight of the all-seeing Christ. He knows exactly what is happening. He sees every faithful thing his people do and every injustice done against them by their enemies. His gaze is absolutely inescapable. That's his head and his hair and his eyes. What about his feet? Well, in verse 15, we read his feet are like bronze. This idea is that no one is able to stand against him to conquer him. It also speaks of his moral purity. We see this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. 
where we read, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It says, buy these things from me. And the context is moral purity. So Jesus is one who is absolutely morally pure, no defilement whatsoever, whose eyes are penetrating to the very hiddenness of everything that is hidden from us, but nothing is hidden to him. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-discerning. More than that, look at his hands. Verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now he holds the seven stars. So Jesus holds these angels that serve these churches in his hands. Look at Psalm 73, 23, or Psalm 139, verse 10 when you have time. We would do well to spend some more time on learning about and and unpacking the angelic ministry to churches that are all under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his mouth. As I've already said, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. He has two-edged swords in his mouth. Now, this speaks of his words. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? where the word of God is described as a sharp two-edged sword. Remember also 2 Thessalonians 2.8 in Isaiah 11.4 and Psalm 29.3 where his voice resonates with power and his words resonate with truth. And then we see his face. We read in verse 16, his face is like the sun. This is a way of describing his glory. Remember the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 2, where he was transfigured before the disciples and his face was shining like the sun in full strength because of, as, a, as an image of his unveiled glory. It's not saying that Jesus was a pale Galilean man. It's saying that he's a furious figure who will not be managed and will not be controlled and will do what he wants to do. That's his anatomy. Now look at his attire. Look at what he's wearing. He's wearing a long robe, we read, which identifies him as a priest. Okay? In Exodus 28, verse 4, and 29, verse 5, we read of the priests of the Old Testament wearing long robes. And this is, this is emphasized because it not only mentions the robe, but it mentions the waistband. The only time, you could, you can, we can make arguments about, well, are you sure, Pastor Mark, that robe refers to you know, him being a priest? I mean, there's robes used up. You know, kings wear robes too, absolutely. But the waistband is a key insight here because the waistband is the only thing, to my knowledge, in the Bible that's associated with the robe. And it's only associated with the priesthood. In Exodus 28, verse 8, the waistband belonged to the high priest, So what this is saying is that Jesus is not only a king, he's a priest. And he's not only a king and a priest, he's a prophet. He's the one who declares the word of God. He's the one who dies and intercedes for sinners. And he's the one who rules and reigns over all things. Now notice his activity. We've seen his anatomy. We've seen his attire. Look at his activity. He's walking. He's walking among his lampstands. This is beautiful. 
Aren't you thankful that this all-powerful one lives among his churches? He ain't out there. We see evidence of that all around. He ain't out there. In common grace, yes, he's out there. But in the church, he is among us. He's among his churches. He dwells with his churches. He's not an absentee landlord. He lives among us. He's present. He knows our conditions. And he's not abandoned us to our trials. He's with us today, church. Even when we can't feel it, we believe it by faith. Because that glorifies him more than if we felt it. Because if we felt it, would we really need to feel, have faith? No, we feel it. But by faith, we, we accept it and we believe it to be true. Also, in Zechariah 4.6, Zechariah's vision of seven lampstands seems to represent the power of the Holy Spirit. The church thus draws its power to shine from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. G.K. Beale says, part of Christ's priestly work is to tend to the lampstands. This is beautiful. This is Old Old Testament temple imagery. What's happening is the priest going to his lampstands and putting oil in them so they continue to burn. That's what he's doing. That was a chief job of the priest was to make sure the tabernacle was well furnished and the lamps continued to burn and the incense was regularly offered. The Old Testament priests would trim the lamps, remove the wick and the old oil, and refill the lamps with fresh oil and relight those who had gone out. Oh, Lord Jesus, light your churches ablaze in this day. Prune the dead wicks that are burning or extinguished and let them burn brightly for you in these days. That's way, way more of a concern to Jesus than anything that's going on politically. He wants his churches alive. Do they get that from you? Would the people of this community get that from your Facebook page? Jesus is alive. He's reigning. He's ruling over all things. May that be what we are most passionate about, church. If not, he'll take our lampstand away. He will not abide rivals, Republicans or Democrats. He and he alone is king and must be recognized and worshipped as such. Likewise, Christ tends to his lampstands in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. That's a beautiful image. May the Lord continue to do that among us and among all of his churches. Thirdly and finally, the response to the Son of Man. We've seen the request. Write all this down. We've seen the revelation. Here he is. Now, what do we do with this? We're told in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, notice John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It was more than John could take. He came unraveled. Joel Beakey says, you are not a Christian unless you have experienced something like this. A sense of humiliation before the glory of the Lord. Now, none of us got a vision, okay, when we got saved. But I'm talking about, have you ever felt your sinfulness so deeply that you were utterly broken before God and said, I am a 
filthy, wretched sinner deserving of judgment. And apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have no part with them. This is the way everybody interacts who meets God. Isaiah 6 sees the glory and the holiness of the Lord and falls down on his face and says, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He's not talking about the sin out there. He's talking about the sin in here. Whose sin matters more to you? Yours or theirs? If you're a Christian, it's always yours. Always yours. I am my own biggest problem in this life. And all of us are. But the Son of Man strengthens him. I want you to notice how Jesus responds to us when we are this broken. He doesn't say, good, grovel. No, look at what he does. He laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. (laughs) He strengthens him. As scary as he is, he's gentle. I'm reminded of that vision of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia where they're telling one of the girls, it's Susan, I think, and Susan's asking questions about Aslan. They're getting ready to go meet Aslan, and they're really concerned because they've heard great things about him. And he, and he says, is he safe? He's like, no, 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 he's not safe. But he's good. That's our Jesus. He is not a tame lion. And he is not safe. But he is good. And when we see the Son of Man in all his glory, we are filled with awe and we fall down and we worship him. And when suffering comes, we remember who he is. And if we trust in Jesus, we don't have anything else to fear. But if we don't, we have everything to fear. We don't have to fear death because we realize that Jesus holds the keys. Death won't triumph over us because it conquered Jesus. And we can be full of confidence that whatever we face, Jesus reigns over all and he will protect us as his own. Notice verse 18. Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. the The older I get, and I know I'm still... Only an early 40s guy. But the older I get, I I think about death a lot more now than I did. I don't know if it's an age thing. I know some of you are thinking, like, come on, Pastor Mark, I've been thinking about death for 10 years. Catch up. But I, I think about death a lot. And one of the things that brings me greatest comfort is when Jesus says, I'm the living one. Because I know he came out the other side. And if he came out the other side, I'm going to come out the other side. And if he's still in the grave, I'll still be in the grave. But he didn't. He's not still in the grave. So that's the comfort. He died. He rose again. Those who are united to him will die and rise again. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday, a king. Laid down in grief, but awoke with the keys of hell on that day. The firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ, laid death in his grave. And so he'll lay death in our graves too. Now, let me conclude last couple minutes with a few applications. Number one. This explains for us the normal Christian life. We are given an explanation of the normal Christian life. Following Jesus is marked by pain, but it's also marked by privilege. The pain is physical, the privilege is spiritual. 
Don't reverse it. The pain is physical. The privilege is spiritual. So what's the pain? Tribulation. What's the privilege? Kingdom. Membership in Christ's kingdom makes us, makes, does not shield us from suffering. It's the reason we suffer. Hamilton, James Hamilton, professor at Southern Seminary, says, Make no mistake about it, your best life is not now. Your best life will begin when the skies are split by the shout of the archangel. Our call in this life is endurance. This is a description of our lives from new birth to death. Endurance means that we abide under a heavy load, but we stay with it, we hang in there, and we don't throw in the towel or drop out of the race. The one who endures to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. You drop out, it's evidence you're never in the race to begin with. If we endure, we will reign with him, 2 Timothy 2, 12. We can do this knowing, though, Jesus continually, every day of our lives, puts his hand on our shoulder and says, Fear not, I'm with you. You're going to finish because of me. Number two, we have motivation here for the normal Christian life. The church today looks like a pitifully small group around the world. The church is not impressive. In some places, Christians are persecuted. In other places, Christians are made fun of or left out of things. What Christians believe is seen as old-fashioned and ridiculous. Christianity goes against the current of society and is completely irrelevant to most people in the 21st century. But take heart, church. The church is unstoppable because Christ is unstoppable. The church will stand at the grave. Listen to me. The church will stand at the grave of every other nation, corporation, and organization known to man. The church will stand at the grave, God forbid, of the United States of America. It will stand at its grave. The church will stand at the grave of every corporation or organization known to man. All the motivation we need is found in this glorious vision of Christ. He's our high priest and king whose wisdom knows no bounds, whose strength has no limits, whose voice is powerful, who's committed himself to our everlasting safety, whose judgments are perfect, and whose appearance is glorious. He lives forever. He has the authority over death. He has a plan for the ages. Do not fear time since he's the first and the last. Don't fear life because he's alive forevermore. Don't fear death because he holds the keys to the grave. We have everything we need right here for everything this life will bring. Number three. We have an invitation to the normal Christian life. And I want to say this especially to kids and to adults here who have yet to come to Christ. If you have yet to fall down and worship before Jesus, have much fear. Here's what I mean by that. If you're not a Christian, if you've not called out to God for forgiveness of your sin through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, if you've not turned from your sin and rebellion against God and confessed Jesus as Savior and King and Lord, and been baptized into his name, then you have much reason to fear today. For one day, it could be today, you will die and he, or he will return, and instead of facing Jesus as Savior, you will face him as judge, and you will have much reason to fear standing in sin before a holy God in judgment. So turn from your sin today. Trust in Jesus as the Savior who died on the cross today. He is, if you're outside of Christ this morning, I want you to know Jesus will place his hand right on your shoulder and say, you don't have to be afraid of anything. I will save you. 
So do that in your heart. Turn and trust in Jesus as your Savior who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the grave in victory. Do that in your heart even now. I urge you. And when you do, and for all of us who turn from sin and trust in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, have no fear. It's the most often repeated command in the Bible because it's the most oft-committed sin we have. Do not be afraid. Don't dread the day when you will see Jesus' face. Anticipate that day. And know today that nothing can happen to you in this world that will ever separate you from him and it is not intended for your everlasting good. May his glory, church, continue to captivate our imagination. May we never cease to be amazed by his magnificence. May we never grow casual in his presence. May his glory continually captivate our imagination. May his grace supernaturally empower our devotion. In a world where we are bombarded by sin and suffering on a daily basis, in a world where it's challenging to speak up for Christ, make no mistake about it. In the meantime, here we share in his sufferings and we endure with patience knowing that we have a purpose, which is to make his gracious glory known to the ends of the earth, no matter what it costs us. I pray that you and I, that all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, will see his glory as the unshakable foundation of our lives and for our church. My prayer today is that if we're weak, you'll find strength in him. If you're sorrowful, you'll find comfort. If you're confused, you'll find clarity. If you are weary, you'll find hope. And if you're struggling with sin, you'll be empowered to, to, be, to be bold and fight it. And all those who are timid and witness will be emboldened today to speak up for Jesus because this is who he is. Let's pray. Father, we marvel in as much as we can by your help. We marvel at the vision of your son that's given to us in these verses. Jesus, we admire you. We worship you. We recommit ourselves this morning to you. Lord, may this vision dominate our minds. May this vision capture our hearts. May this vision drive our ambitions, drive our emotions and our, and our passion. May all that we have and all that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, may we do it all for the glory of God. For this God, for the God you are, for the God you've revealed yourself to be in these verses. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes again. Remove the hardness of heart. Remove the blindness of our eyes. Remove the waywardness of our affections. And capture us all over again with the glorious vision of the Son of Man, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.